We are digging into the book of Job today. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, thanks for joining us on this Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Just a heads up, I will not be taking calls today, but we are digging into the book of Job with the release now of my commentary on the book of Job. We want to dig into it, dig into the Hebrew, have some real exegetical fun, meaning opening up the scriptures together on the line of fire. So I trust you will be enriched by the broadcast. If you have ordered your copy of the book, they are being signed and numbered and sent out. You may have received yours already. If not, in the days ahead, look forward to receiving it. And, you know, it it it, it thrills me as, as, as many books as I've written. It thrills me each time a new book is published, but some thrill me even more because they've been worked on longer periods of time. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you can imagine uh, as, as a mother, if, if the whole process of conception and pregnancy and delivery was like a month versus nine months, we feel a whole lot different. Or nine months versus two years, feel a whole lot different. So this one from the time I started on it to finished it was about eight years. You have to realize I was working on a lot of other projects and and then sometimes I was working on this day and night, day and night, day and night from month after month after month after month. And then other times it was less. And, and, and then there'd be a break of several years where I was working on on the side while working on other things, but on and off over an eight year period and some of it with real, real intensity. So it, it thrills me. It blesses me. You have no idea how much joy I get signing one of these when I see who ordered it, there's your name, you know, to Bob or to Linda and signing it. Just, it gives me great joy and putting a scripture reference in there. So thanks for your interest in the book of Job. Can I just say a little background that, that's interesting? So I had taught a class at Southern Evangelical Seminary on the book of Job, and it was about 10 years ago. Now, I had loved the book of Job from early on. You know, the narrative part's incredible and the poetic dialogue, you know, who's right and who's wrong and what's going on. I'm just enthralled by it over the years and trying to figure it out, understand it, and then taught classes that related to Job over the years and taught uh, the book of Job in detail at other times over the years. Had some really, really interesting and enlightening feedback from students that helped shape my understanding of certain key passages and things like that. But always stay with it, accumulate a ton, a lot of commentaries and books on Job so I could learn from others as well. So I taught this class on Job, had a great time, great students, great biblical and, and theological and philosophical discussion we had. And, and then I got consumed, I gotta write a I gotta write a commentary in the book of Job. And so I reached out to a few different publishers. I'd written a commentary in Jeremiah for Zondervan in the, in the revised edition of the Expositor's Bible Commentary. I reached out to a couple of publishers and said, hey, do you have any major commentary series right now where Job has not yet been assigned? Because it could be, you know, there, there might be a major commentary series and the commentary may come out in several volumes and it's several thousand pages and a scholar may work on that over 20 years. So you'll hear, oh, so-and-so was working on a commentary on such and such a book. It literally may be 20 years before the thing is finished and, and, and is finally published. Academic work can be very serious and painstaking and, 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 and time-consuming. Anyway, 
check with a couple of publishers and, oh, we would have loved for you to do it, but that's already assigned and no, we don't have an opening here. So I, I prayed, I thought, boy, I really feel like I'm supposed to do this. So I reached out to Hendrickson Publishers, fine scholarly publishers, and I said, I, I've got this burden to do a commentary on Job, but uh, it'll be standalone because they didn't have a commentary series and, and they bought into it. You have to understand that generally speaking, the commentaries that sell the most are part of a series. So you have the Expositor's Bible Commentary series, or you have the Word Biblical Commentary, or you have International Critical Commentary, or Tyndale Commentary, or New International Commentary, or or Baker <laughs> Exegetical Commentary, or Anchor Bible, yeah, now it's Yale Anchor Bible, or Hermeneia, or, or whatever the commentary series is. So you get volumes in that series as they come out. And independent commentaries are a little bit harder to sell because it's just standing by itself. But I, I knew that, that this was something I was supposed to do. And an editor at Hendrickson really bought into it, and the team there bought into it. So it has been a joy to work on this with them. And they're thrilled with the response to the book so far because, as they said to me, this is the thing that's interesting. Their books, are they're an academic publisher. So it's very common, the vast majority of their authors will be seminary professors and the like, people involved in academic work. It, it is kind of a first to have someone like me, uh, a national radio host, and then preaching in certain large settings, etc., and an academic as well. So we tailored the book for this audience so that all of you who listen, all of you who watch this broadcast, all of you who read our other books and articles would be able to have something that's accessible yet with good, good academic and scholarly foundations. And then in the back, those that want to dig even deeper and get to the Hebrew even more, we, we have key, uh, key essays on some of the key verses in, in, in the book. And then perhaps in the future, God willing, I will be able to publish the full academic work, maybe expand this and those that just like the real technical, so, you know, we'll maybe, do, maybe there'll be a series that opens up where we'll do it for that. We, we shall see. But this is the one that we wanted to get out for all of you. So just some interesting backstory. There's, there's a lot more, but just wanted to share that. So we, we made the commentary that would, would be for you, our listeners and our viewers. And, 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 and listen, the calls that I get on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, the calls that I get on Friday, you ask great questions and, and often penetrating comments. And some of you weigh in on YouTube, and I get to look at some of the comments there. Really, really insightful comments. So I, I believe you'll be enriched as you read this. So let's throw out a few things. Let, let's, let's start in, Gen, in Genesis, Job 1. Obviously, we're not going through the whole book today, but I want to throw out a few highlights for you. So there was a man in the land of Uts whose name was Job. Now, where was Uts? We don't know for sure. There's very little reference in Scripture to it. We don't know for sure. But some have suggested in Edom, all right? So this would be a southern location, uh, southeast. Uh, but there's speculation about that. And we have notes where you know, we address where it could be. Don't know for sure. But the man's name was Job, Eov in Hebrew. Now, that man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Instead of blameless, I translate full of integrity. Now, it's not the smoothest. He was full of integrity, but it's so important to understand that that's the root that's used there because Job's integrity is a major theme through the book. All right, let me comment a few things about this. Uh, what's the meaning of Job? Well, it's, it's not necessarily an Israelite name. 
In other words, it's not like Hiskiahu, Hezekiah, or Eliyahu. These Yahu names, this is short for Yahweh, God's name at the end. We, it's, it's not a name like that, all right? It's, it's not a name that contains a divine element speaking about God in a certain way. It is meant to be the name of a non-Israelite or someone that lived before the nation of Israel existed. So the narrative we normally place back around patriarchal times, when the story actually took place, all right, the, the way life is described and things like that, it, it seems to be something that would be fitting in the days of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But this is as a non-Israelite. But the book is written for Israelite readers reflecting Torah theology and biblical theology. In other words, you read the book against that grid. The book itself is written later. It's not the oldest book of the Bible. People often say it, but we have strong evidence that is not the case. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that it is written for biblically literate readers. In other words, it's written for people that understand the Sinai Covenant. It's written for people that understand the words of the prophets and, and are familiar with wisdom teaching and things like that. It's written for them, and then they interpret the story against that grid. All right, so what does Job mean? We don't know for sure. Uh, some say that it relates to names we have attested in Akkadian, Babylonian, Assyrian form, uh, Ayu, Abba, something like that. Where is the father, which father perhaps being a name of God? We don't know, all right, or a description of God, I should say. Here's what we do know. It comes from the same root from whence we get Oyev, which is enemy, all right? Eov, his name, then the word enemy, Oyev. And in the book, at one point, Job asks, have I become your enemy? So Eov asks God, how have I become your Oyev? And the particular form, all right, you can't prove this, but it's, it is suggested that the form could be a passive form, all right? The way the vowels are there could indicate a passive form, like shikor is, is a drunk. So this is someone who drinks and they become drunk. So could it be that Eov is one who has become God's enemy, one who has become the enemy. And, and that is the name that, that he is called here in this narrative. That's how he is referred to, to paint a picture of what's going on. Again, it's very interesting. We don't know for sure, but it's very interesting. What we do see, though, is that there is a cosmic drama going on. And here's the, here's the big battle. This is what's going on behind the scenes. Satan... Hasatan, the adversary, that's how I, I render it in Job 1 and 2. The adversary is basically sticking up his nose like, pa, yeah, right. When God says, well, what have you been doing? Where have you been? Oh, yeah, right. I'm looking around. Oh, yeah. I like what I see here. Everything looks pretty good to me. In other words, it's a wicked world. It's a sinful world. It's an ungodly world. It is a world in rebellion. Yeah. I like what I see here. That is the backdrop. That's the understanding on which God then says, have you considered my servant Job? I was speaking with a pastor with an incredible testimony of, of grace in his life, his wife's life, their 19-year-old son killed in a car accident. Their emphasis would be, well, he went to heaven. That was 10 years ago when their son went to heaven. And I was talking to this pastor, and he said, think of it, Job 1, God puts his trust in a man, that he's going to come through a test a certain way, and it's going to be to the glory of God. Think of that. Job stood out from everybody on the planet. Have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody like him on earth. In other words, 
Satan, he's not under your domain. He's not doing things your way. He's not beating. He's not marching to the beat of your drums. He's different. And then Satan's going to challenge it. Oh, yeah, really? Right. Sure. You go ahead and take everything he has, and he'll curse you to your face. In other words, nobody really loves God out of pure motive. Nobody really serves God out of pure motives. People serve God because it's good for them, because it works well for them, because they benefit from it. You take away the benefits, and they'll curse God. That's what human beings are, and God says, not Job. Of course, God in his nature is not now going to take everything from Job and smite his children. That's for Satan to do. But that's how the thing unfolds. And that's the great cosmic battle that God is going to demonstrate that there are people on this planet who love him no matter what, who love him because he's God, not because of the benefits. And hence, the story unfolds. God of light, hear our cry. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. This is Michael Brown. Delighted to be with you as we open up the book of Job today, not taking your calls, digging into the book of Job. So thrilled and excited to be holding this commentary. Beautifully produced volume again. If you haven't ordered your signed numbered copy yet, we're still doing those, sending those out. Just go to askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org, and get as many copies as you like, if you like, for holiday gifts. But if you want me to sign them, just tell me who I'm signing them to. And again, it is my great joy and privilege to do that. So thank you for your interest in the book. Please let us know how you enjoy the read. And then wherever you purchased it, that doesn't matter. But please post a review on Amazon for others to see. Amazon, the most trafficked of all the book websites. So please go to Amazon.com once you've, once you've read the book or used the commentary for a while so you can feel you can say something uh, intelligent about it. You've had time to work with it. Uh, please post a review if, it, if the book has blessed you so that others will know. It can just be a sentence or two. That's a great thing to do. All right. So we have this cosmic drama going on in the heavens of which Job knows nothing on the earth, and his friends know nothing. All they know is this man, who is the greatest man in the East, this man who is famed for his righteousness, for his compassion, for for his pursuit of justice. If you want to see the kind of man Job was and how he lived, read Job 31. You find me somebody that lives like that. It is unreal, the ethics by which he lived and the fear of God by which he lived. So, you have this man of legendary righteousness who was super abundantly blessed, as you would expect, especially under Sinai Covenant mentality. Again, the book written outside of Sinai Covenant as if Job and his friends are non-Israelites. That's what we understand. But it's written with that mentality that it would be as if they were living under the Sinai Covenant and, and righteousness would be blessed materially in many other ways. All they know, friends and Job, is that this man who was once incredibly blessed has now lost everything overnight, lost all of his wealth, lost his 10 children, lost his health, uh, and, and everything, lost his reputation. It just He's nothing now, sitting in the ash heap with a piece of pottery, scratching himself. And his friends come, and they mourn with him for seven days, say nothing. And as this pastor said to me, man who suffered personal tragedy, uh, he said, you know, Job's friends were doing great until they opened their mouths. 
you know, they sat for seven days and mourned. Sometimes in the midst of great tragedy, that's, that's what you do. You just mourn with people and you love on them. And then little by little, you put an arm around them and courage and strength comes back. And then maybe there's some words to speak. But in the midst of it, there's no magic word. But Job speaks up first in the third chapter. He doesn't curse God, never curses God. But he curses the day he was born. He, he, he is so undone. He wishes that his day could be removed from history, that it never happened. He was never born. And, that's, and this way he would not be suffering the agony she was suffering. And remember, above the, the emotional loss of, of all of his children and the shock of losing all of his possessions and, and the, the agony of his, of his physical condition was, was the, the deeper issue of, wait a second, this is not, something's wrong. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It would be as if you love God and served him all your life and put your trust in the blood of Jesus and you die and you find yourself in hell. It's like, this is not the way it's supposed to happen. Something's wrong here. What's, what in the world is going on? Now, some have tried to find a way out of that and said, well, you see, Job, he was walking in fear. And that's confirmed by Job 3.25. He was walking in fear. He opened the door to the devil. If so, then what's, what's the point of the whole book? What's, what's the point of the book? And, and, and why does God then have to give Satan permission to attack? And why does God say to the adversary in the second chapter, you're moving me to destroy him without cause? Wasn't God just saying, yeah, you better believe it. That fool opened the door through fear. And not only so, it is a biblical teaching that, that the fears of the wicked are realized, not the fears of the righteous. Everybody has fears at some point. You know, you're not married. I'm never going to get married. You're married... You know, you're, you're a woman, never going to be able to have children. You're pregnant, something's going to be wrong with the baby. Child's born, child's not going to live. Child's, kid's going to walk away from God. You know, someone's going to die in a car wreck. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. We're going to go bankrupt. Going to fail in ministry. Going to have a moral failure. Gonna, this is going to go wrong. That's going to, we're going to get caught up a storm and die. Everybody has fears, but the fears of the righteous are not realized because we ultimately fear God and those things have no power. It's the fears of the wicked that come to pass. This whole thing, well, Job walked in fear. All that does is create a theology of fear. Now you're like, oh, no, I fear this is going to happen. <clears throat> Plus, there's, the text is not saying that when Job was concerned that his, his kids may have, may have spoken wrongly about God and, and in the midst of one of their feasts and forgotten God and spoke, spoke wrongly, that wasn't a fear-based thing. That was a father who cared and was interceding. That's mentioned to make Job look good. Well, Job's problem was that he married the wrong woman, you see, and that, oh gosh, what, what, we should make a special chapter for Job's other comforters, you know, with all the, the stupid, silly things that are being said. You see, you know, that was the problem. Well, why did God bless Job with that wife with 10 children? Why did God bless Job with that same wife with 10 more children later on? Why didn't he replace her? Why was she part of the blessing and the restoration? <clears throat> And, you know, I've seen these ridiculous excuses. Well, in Job 1, he's the Lord gave, the Lord took away. Uh, he was blaspheming God when he said that. I heard a word of faith preacher said that he was blaspheming God when he said that. Because in point of fact, you know, God doesn't take away. <sighs> he is commended for saying that. All right? He is commended. The author of Job, and, and we have no idea who wrote Job, by the way. The, or or if, if several authors worked on it. I believe it was one, but we have no idea who it was anyway. So the part of the mystery of the book, that this incredible book, the most amazing book ever written in certain ways, we don't know who wrote it, not even a hint. But anyway, anyway, 
the idea that Job blasphemed because the Lord gave and the Lord took away. The, the author of Job commends him for, for what he said. And from the viewpoint of an Old Testament saint, you're not thinking about the devil or the adversary stealing. That's not even an option in your mind. God gives, God takes away. I've been blessed with a lot. Now I don't have anything. Obviously, God gave, then God took away. That was a word of faith he spoke. And ultimately, it's a word of submission and trust in God. Anyway, people just, they have to figure something out because, like, well, maybe that'll happen to me. What the book of Job is saying is an extreme, extreme form is no matter what happens, you still trust God and you still trust his goodness. Don't do what the friends did and judge Job as guilty. The friends judge Job as guilty because that's what their theology had to dictate because otherwise this might happen to one of us. So you have to kind of put up this wall and instead of being compassionate, now we've got to protect ourselves. Job judged God as guilty because he knew that based on the nature of God, he should not be suffering those things, which was true. But rather than trust God through it, he accused God in the midst of it. So the lesson for us is don't judge the person. Don't judge God. If you're going through difficult times, don't change your view of God. Here, here let me give you an example. Let's say that you, you knew me for decades, all right? And we grew up together. I was a family friend, and you had this beautiful estate, beautiful property, and a beautiful home, and, and you were going away for a month, and, and you needed someone to oversee the property and oversee the house in your absence and make sure that it was properly taken care of. Landscapers maintain things properly and that there was proper security of the house and all this. And I said, you bet, I'll stay up. Glad to stay at your house. be like a vacation for me for a month. And, and you come back after a month and you see that the trees are smashed. You see that the house, the windows are smashed. You, you, you see just, I mean, it's like, a bomb went off on the property. It's like, what in the world happened? Would your first reaction be, what did Mike do to our property? Why did he do that? Or would your first reaction be, what happened? Is he okay? In other words, if you trusted me all those years, you know, I didn't suddenly think, you know, I think I'm going to trash this property and destroy this house and yeah, rob him of millions of dollars worth of stuff. Yeah, I think I'm just going to do that. No, your first thing, what happened? Is he okay? Oh no, what happened? Where's Mike? That would be your first thought right? So rather than looking differently at God, there must be something wrong with God. Why did God do this? On the one hand, or on the other hand, Job, Job must be wicked. No, the better thing is we don't understand what happened, but Job, we love you and we trust God. Let's stand together and get through this. And, and let's trust that no matter what we see, no matter what we're experiencing, that we put our trust in the goodness of God. So that's what the friends didn't do. They had one other alternative. And I want you to look in Job, the fifth chapter. These are the words of Eliphaz, who's the oldest of the friends and presumably the wisest. And he starts speaking in the fourth chapter. In the fifth chapter, verse 17, he says this, Behold, happy is the... Wait, wait, hang on, hang on. You know what? We, we got Tree of Life translation up there, which is great. But since I have my own translation of Job, I'm going to read my own. But leave Tree of Life up there, Kai. And this way, those that are watching... Can, can see the one and hear mine. Job 5, verse 17. Look, truly happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not reject the discipline of Shaddai, 
for he causes pain, but then binds up. He smites, but then his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles and seven, no harm will touch you. During famine, he will redeem you from death and during war from the power of the sword. From the scourge of the tongue, you'll be hidden. You'll have no fear when destruction comes. You will laugh at destruction and famine. You'll have nothing to fear from wild animals. For your covenant will be with the rocks of the field and the animals of the field will be at peace with you. And you will know that all is well with your household. And when you inspect your abode, you'll find nothing missing. You'll know that your offspring will be many. Your descendants will be like the grass of the earth. You will come to the grave in vigor like sheaves of grain in their season. Look, we have investigated this and it is so. Listen to it and you, you apply it to yourself. Great words from Eliphaz. Yeah, that was his only conclusion. Job, you're a righteous man, but obviously there's some sin. God wants to correct you. That's what just happened. The only problem was it wasn't accurate. It was a wrong application to Job, and that's what the friends did over and over. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to this special edition of Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Not taking your calls today, but we are diving into the book of Job. Yeah, it's like the baby with an eight-year gestation period. Thrilled to be holding on to this commentary, and it's, it's a beautifully a produced book. You, you'll see it's worth every dime when, when you get it. And again, if you haven't ordered your copy yet from us, signed and numbered from the first printing only, that's when we do it. And then a special audio message, which you'll find incredibly eye-opening, and it'll give you insights into the, the whole book of Job and some bigger theological issues. How did Job speak rightly about God? You can do that on our website, askdrbrown, askdrbrown.org. Okay, so in the book of Job, you have this dynamic. Chapters one and two are in narrative form. Beginning chapter three, the style of the Hebrew changes, it's poetry. It's poetic dialogue. And that continues into the beginning of the 42nd chapter. And then it goes from there back to narrative, back to prose. So this is unique in terms of all the books in the Bible, that you get like bookends on either side, the narrative, the beginning, and the end. And then in the middle of it, the poetic dialogue. And here you have Job going back and forth with his friends. So third chapter, Job speaks. Then Eliphaz, the oldest of the friends, speaks, chapters four and five. Then Job, chapters six and seven. Then the next of the friends, Bildad, chapter eight. Then Job goes in chapters nine and 10. Then Zophar, chapter 11. Then back to Job. This is extended, 12, 13, 14. Then Eliphaz chapter 15, then Job 16. And it goes on like that, a second cycle completely. And then in the third cycle, uh, Job speaks chapter 22, then it's, it's Eliphaz. But then it starts to break down. There's, there's Job and there's only something short from Bildad. There's nothing from Zophar. And there are scholars who think, well, something got lost here and it's not properly edited and something dropped out. But my understanding is this is how God has preserved it for us, that it shows the breaking down of the friends' positions, that they, just, they become like broken records. And in fact, the more you read, 
They have to reinforce their orthodox theology. The wicked are punished, the righteous are blessed. The wicked are punished, the righteous are blessed. Because they got Job sitting in front of him, and because Job's getting more and more defiant, and because this man whom they once revered has now lost everything, you must be wicked. There is something wrong with you, Job. This is what begins to unfold. So as you read more and more, not without exception, you know, Eliphaz has a word of encouragement in chapter 22 and so on, but not without exception. But it gets to a point where it, the, the main thing they're saying is the wicked suffer, the wicked suffer. The last thing that Job needs to be hearing right then, all right? So the dialogue goes on. Chapter 28 is called The Hymn to Wisdom. It's an amazing passage about wisdom. Are those the words of Job or are those the words of the editor of the book, the author of the book, who then inserts that kind of a poetic refrain? But then Job finishes speaking in the 31st chapter. He says everything. He pleads his cause and basically says, look, let me be destroyed. If I have not lived righteously, if I have not lived by my convictions, if I have not cared for others, then let me be destroyed. He comes to that conclusion and, and, and that's chapter 31. And then Elihu's Elihu. He's not mentioned. You have Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar mentioned in the third chapter, but uh, uh, in the second chapter and speak after the third chapter, Job speaks in Eliphaz starting chapter four. It's like Who's Elihu? And then he's gone. He's, he speaks speaks a whole lot, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, and then he's out. He's gone. And then God speaks. So Elihu's this enigmatic figure, and it's amazing. Scholars are massively divided as, as to whether he's a good guy or bad guy. To this day, when I used to have students at Christ for the Nations, when I taught there from 83 to 87, when I was there full-time, uh, the, the branch of the school on Stony Brook, Long Island, the big campus in Dallas and the, the small branch that we had for a few years up through 91. When I would teach 83 to 87, I would have the students do a paper on Job, specifically Elihu. And every year they were equally divided. Half the class thought he was amazing and, and spoke for God. And half the class thought he was like full of himself and a jerk and you know arrogant young person. Every year, every year. And, and when you read commentaries, they tend to be divided like that. And you've even had some commentators that at one point in their lives thought one thing and then decades later revisited and thought something else. To me, that's part of the plan of God, this ambiguity in who Elihu is. But what's fascinating is that his name, and we, we open this up in great depth in the commentary, what's fascinating is that his name, Elihu, is identical, virtually identical in spelling to Eliyahu, Elijah, except for a vowel, basically, all right? So you have Elihu, Eliyahu. So in English, it's Elihu, Elijah. They sound like two different people, but in Hebrew, it's Elihu and Eliyahu, all right? And it was, it was Professor Robert Gordas who uh, talked about that in his famous work on Job. And then some of my students, when I was teaching at Messiah Biblical Institute, school that I led in, in Maryland from 87 to 93, I was teaching a graduate level class. And some of the students, three independently, all came to the same conclusion that he was an Elijah type of figure. And then you prepared the way for the Lord, that he was here and then he was gone. Or like a John the Baptist, right? Prepares the way for the Lord, he's here and then he's gone. In, in fact, there was more that happened when these students came in, just a little class of five uh, students and three of them doing papers and two were auditing the class and the three doing papers basically independently wrote the same paper. And, and a, a bunch of other things happened that were just absolutely fascinating and amazing. But he just goes, he, he's there, then he's gone, he's not mentioned at the end, and then God speaks in the whirlwind, so it's almost like he's taken out of the way, and Elijah in the whirlwind, you know, the whole bit, the similarities. And yet there's no question, there's no question 
that the I like Elihu, I don't like Elihu, that that's, that's part of the ambiguity there. How do we read him? How do we understand him? So I see it. I understand it. That he is an Elijah type of figure, that he prepares the way for the coming of the Lord. And Elijah slash John, the immersive kind of figure, he prepares the way for the coming of the Lord. Okay? And, and prepares this way, and then God comes and speaks. But he does so in showing the limitations of human wisdom. In other words, he has some good things to say and some constructive insights, and he's upset with the friends for condemning Job, but they didn't have an answer for him, and, he's, and he's, he's upset with Job for making himself more righteous than God, all right? He's got to justify himself, therefore something's wrong with God. So he's upset with both, and he makes some good points, but then he also, in a sense, runs out of things to say, even though he's extolling God, and so it's like, okay, enough. So Elihu, to me, represents the limitations of human wisdom. There are insights, but it falls short and ultimately prepares the way for God to speak. And interestingly, God never answers Job's questions. He never says, I want you to know what was happening behind the scenes. And there was this malevolent being named Hasatan, the adversary, or that we call the adversary, and, and he was challenging me that there's no one on the earth that really loves God with pure motives, and the only reason that people serve God is because they can benefit from it, and I wanted to prove that that's not the case, and, and Job, you were the man, and, and because of that, I trusted you, and that you were different than everybody on the earth, and I trusted you that, that you would demonstrate something different and thereby silence the adversary, and this would be done in front of the whole heavenly realm the whole heavenly realm could watch and see what was happening, and this would be to the glory of God. And ultimately, Job, you'll come to know me better, and ultimately, Job, you'll be blessed, and this is why it happened. He, he doesn't ever tell him what happened behind the scenes. Instead, he begins to ask Job questions about, you know, where were you when I made the universe, hung the earth on nothing, told the wave, stop here. You know, you ever seen a wild goat give birth or you know, can explain this with an eagle story. And it goes through nature. Now, Professor Bart Ehrman, who I debated, what, nine, 10 years ago uh, on the problem of suffering at Ohio State University, his position is that Job was afraid that it, Job kept wanting to have an audience with God. If I just have it out with God, if I could just, if I could just make my case and, and everything would be okay and, and, and I'd be proven right. And, and, but God just take, don't intimidate me. Don't, like, well, let's have an audience, but I know it's not going to happen because you would intimidate me. And according to Professor Ehrman, that's exactly what God does. He bullies Job. He intimidates Job. You could read the text like that, or you could read it where God gives a majestic panoramic display of who he is, of his wisdom, of his goodness, even in the small things in creation, even with some wilderness area that nobody ever goes and sees, you know, some isolated island somewhere, and there's rain there. And 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 it, it and and. And the trees flourish, and the animal life there flourishes. Like, that's the nature of God, to, to produce flourishing and life and beauty. And that's who he is. And Job's like, all right, I, I, I shouldn't have said what I said. And then God goes on, and then he begins to speak about behemoth and leviathan. What? Who? What? What are you? Hippopotamus and crocodile? You had to talk about, you got a guy who's lost everything, lost his 10 kids, his whole world crushed? Now, have you considered the hippopotamus and the crocodile? Is that it? Or is there more going on? Well, there's a big debate about that, and I write about it a lot in the commentary. But in short, in short, I understand that these were earthly creatures 
Could have been hippo crocodile? Possibly. Maybe creatures that are now extinct that were perhaps even more terrifying in appearance. Could it be dinosaurs? Well, if you have a young earth creation, it could be dinosaurs, all right? But other than that, it wouldn't work because these are things that people knew about, right? But my understanding is that they were earthly creatures, perhaps now extinct, but that were also connected with demonic powers. You know, you might have like in Native American, like the spirit of the wolf. So you get the animal and then the spirit of it, and it's associated with something else. Well, in ancient world, you know, the sea itself was associated with chaos and a chaos god. And you had these different animals that also were associated with demonic beings. And I believe that's, that's the bigger picture that God is painting of his mastery. His, in that sense, there is a hint of a spiritual realm, which, which is certainly recognized and known. No, no one denied the spiritual realm. It's just they didn't have the full insight of what was happening in this particular battle between God and Satan. But my understanding is that these animals, and again, I, I go through all the various views and explain why I see this the way I do and why I agree with other scholars who do, that these, these creatures represent also the, the fierceness of, of demonic power, and the fierceness of the world of, of chaos and darkness. And God says, I have complete mastery over them. I have complete mastery over them. Job, you have no idea what you are talking about. So, so there's a reason God speaks about these. It's not just, hey, Job, I know you lost everything, but let me tell you about how big and strong I am and how I made the world and I made these creatures. No, it's a lot deeper than that. A lot deeper than that. Gloriously deeper than that. And then from there, Job humbles himself and then the amazing verse Verse 7 of chapter 42, when God rebukes the friends for not speaking rightly about God, but saying that Job did speak rightly about God. Hence the subtitle to my book, Job, the Faith Challenge God. All right, a little bit more as we give you some insights. Hopefully you're, you're finding this helpful on the book of Job on the special edition of Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. All right, welcome to our last segment today on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday as we dive together into the book of Job. Obviously, we could spend weeks, months plunging, diving into the depths of this amazing, extraordinary book, but I sought to give you some key insights, some overviews, some points along the way that I trust will be of help and interest to you. Again, I'm not taking your calls today, but I, I want to draw your attention to controversy over the end of the book of Job. So again, just to explain the way my commentary is formatted, there is about 330 pages devoted to introduction, commentary, translation. And then what is it? Oh, 100-something pages devoted to theological reflections. How many are there? One, two, three, four, five, six. Six, seven, eight, nine, nine theological reflections, the last of which deals with the happy ending of Job, and then exegetical essays. So these, we, we go in deeper into the Hebrew for those that want to dig further. Uh, so the meaning of, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips in Job 2.10. What exactly does that mean? And there's a lot of fascinating commentary on that. And then the chaos monsters in Job, we touched on them earlier in the show, the meaning of hofata in Job 10.3, there's a Hebrew word there that we focus on 
interesting significance. And then some of the key verses, Job 13, 15. Does Job say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him? Does he say something different? What do we to make of that passage? I believe I have some real helpful insight there. And then Job 19, 25 to 27. I know that my Redeemer lives. Who's he talking about? And, and is he speaking of a resurrection there? And then Job 24, 18 to 25. Uh, it's not as well-known a section of the book, but tremendously controversial. So we have a section on that. And then Job 42, 6. What did Job mean when he when he said, I, 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 did he say, I, re, I recant or I repent or I repudiate everything I've said or I repent in dust and ashes or on dust and ashes or because I'm dust and ashes? So we, we dig into all those, all right? But here's, here's what I'm going to focus. Oh, and the theological essays. One was who was the adversary? So we understand that the adversary is Satan, the devil. And most of you say, well, that's a no-brainer. Well, scholars actually debate that. Was that the same creature that we later know as the devil or not in Job 1 and 2? So we have an essay on that. And then Job and the new atheists. What would Job say to them? And how would he relate to their arguments against the existence of God? And then challenging God as an act of faith. Uh, something where we open up some fascinating Jewish traditions. When R.T. Kendall was writing an endorsement for the book as a great Calvinist theologian, he asked, what did I mean by the faith to challenge God? And I explained that Job had enough faith in God to know that something was wrong with the way things were happening. And therefore, even though he felt God was behind it, he felt he had to challenge God's actions because of his faith in terms of who God should be. It's fascinating. Some have described it as Job running from God to God. But we open that up. And then Job and Jesus, where are their similarities? Both righteous sufferers, both suffering in a way that brings benefit and help to others. You just think of what Job went through and, and the comfort and strength that's brought to others through the centuries and the lessons that have been learned from it. And yet there are distinct differences and that Job was not perfect and Jesus was. And that this, the death of, of Jesus on the cross, Yeshua's death on the cross, was vicarious and substitutionary. So similarities and differences. And then is suffering a reward for righteousness? Is it the more righteous you are, the more you suffer? Or does that contradict other aspects of what Scripture teaches? So we, we tackle that. And then the danger of holding to a too rigid orthodoxy. Ooh. In other words... I have to be so fair. Everything has to go just like this, like this, like this, like this, because if it doesn't, it's going to mess up my whole theological world. Or if you don't fit in my category, because I believe if you're righteous and you're going to be blessed, it's going to go like this, like this, like this. And if it doesn't fit, then I, I got to judge you, or right? rather than letting my theology be challenged at all. So sometimes we can be so rigid that we lack God's heart and so rigid that we recognize that not everything always falls into neat, tidy, little categories. And then Job and the problem of suffering. Does the book of Job really address the problem of suffering? Is it a real theodicy, which is the problem of God and suffering? God is good and powerful and all-knowing, all good, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, why would he create a world in which there's such suffering? Does the, the book of Job really address that issue? I said categorically, it does. And then how would Job comfort a godly sufferer? What would Job say to someone? On the other side of this, 
what would Job say? We know what he wouldn't say for sure. He wouldn't say, well, where's your faith? Well, obviously you sinned, and that's where you're going, something wrong with you. Obviously Job not say and do that. What would Job say? So we tackle that. And then the happy ending of Job. And, and that's, that's where I want to land uh, as it's the end of the book. Why would anyone be troubled by the happy ending of Job? Now, remember what happens. God not only restores all his possessions, but doubles them. All right? So if before he was worth $10 billion, he's now worth $20 billion. God literally doubles everything he had. And he lost 10 children. God gives him 10 new children, as it was seven sons, three daughters, and the daughters the most beautiful in the land. And all his friends that had been estranged and family members, extended family, they all come back to comfort and console. So there's the restoration of fellowship and, of course, divine favor. And biggest of all, what Job says earlier in chapter 42, I, to God, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. I know you in a way I didn't know you before. I've experienced you in a way I hadn't before. I have a relationship with you I didn't have before. Something rich and, and wonderful and deep. But, but here's the problem some have with the, the end of the book. On the one hand, you lose 10 children, you get 10 children. Is that how it works? Well, the fact he didn't get 20 children is, is, is the book of Job telling us, no, it doesn't just work like that. Because when you lose children, you've lost them. That is a loss for life. That is always a hole. There is always something missing. And he doesn't get 20 back because it's not just some simple equation. So yeah, there's a loss and there's going to be a pain and a part of him missing for the rest of his life. And there's a hint, though, of the afterlife, right? You can't be dogmatic about this, but there's a hint of the afterlife that he doesn't get double children because there are 10 waiting on the other side. They'll be with him forever to join the other 10. But the other issue, and this is the bigger problem, is that some theologians and scholars, especially in the post-Holocaust era, feel that the happy ending undoes the whole message of the book. Because the initial assumption is you, you do well, you honor the Lord, you're righteous, and, and you'll be blessed. And you're wicked, you'll be cursed. And it's that simple. That's why the friends can't find the right category for Job, because he seemed to be a, a righteous man that was blessed, but now he's looking like a wicked man that was cursed. So what is it? So it, many are frustrated because like, well, this just confirms the thing in the end. It's like there's the health and wealth gospel just confirmed in the end. And it's just, it just, it, it oversimplifies things. And what, what about when you, you end with tragedy? What about when the person's never healed? What about when you never get out of the wheelchair? What about when the finances never recover and, and you live in poverty? What about when the family's never restored? What, what about when it seems your life outwardly is more cursed than blessed? What about the millions slaughtered in the Holocaust and in other human tragedies and acts of human violence? Well, what about that? And, doesn't this have a happy ending, happy ending? But that is the whole message that ultimately in God, there is a happy ending. That either in this world or the world to come, we will see the full manifestation of the goodness of God. Either we will see the restoration out of that trial. Either we will see the recovery from, from bankruptcy to a place where you can be generous and helpful to others. Or you will see that marriage restored, that family restored. You will see that, that healing come. And if you don't in this world, then forever and ever and ever, you'll experience the fullness of blessing. You may live through hardship in this world. You may be imprisoned for the gospel, 
You, you may have family members killed for the gospel. You may have a lifelong chronic illness. You may have all kinds of hardship in your life. It's, it's always a hard life. But if you honor the Lord and love the Lord and your sins have been forgiven through the blood of the cross, if not in this world, then in the world to come, you will see the fullness of blessing. And even in this world, in the midst of suffering and pain, God can use it in a redemptive way. Even in this world, in the midst of hardship and difficulty, there can be blessing, there can be grace, there can be favor, and your suffering and pain can ultimately be used by God to bring you closer to him and ultimately be used by God to allow you to minister to others, even if the sickness and pain themselves are an attack from the enemy, as in the book of Job. So the happy ending is important to know. As, as Paul wrote in, first, excuse me, in Romans 8, that I consider the sufferings of this present age not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The happy ending is there, that, that Jesus says you may mourn now, but you will be comforted, and the meek will inherit the earth, and, and hope does spring eternal because one day we'll see him face to face and be with him forever and be like him where we don't sin anymore and we don't want evil anymore and we just love God and are loved by God forever and ever with unspeakable joy, indescribable joy, and peace and grace, and that being our portion. And no pain, no hardship, and no poverty, and no oppression, and no difficulty in those terms forever. So what we don't receive in this age, God is saying we will receive in the age to come. But even in this age, in many ways, we'll see breakthroughs and restorations and manifestations of the kingdom, the happy ending is there for a reason. Hey, friends, don't forget, if you haven't ordered your copy yet from the first edition signed number, a special audio message on how Job spoke rightly of God, go to my website right now. Not too late to order. You'll be getting these out shipping if you haven't gotten them already any day. Ask drbrown.org.